The scripture reading today is excerpt from Acts chapter 10. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion in the Italian company. He and his whole household were pious, gentle God-worshippers. He gave generously to those in need among the Jewish people and prayed to God constantly. One day at nearly three o'clock in the afternoon, he clearly saw an angel from God in a vision. The angel came to him and said, Cornelius. Startled, he stared at the angel and replied, What is it, Lord? The angel said, Your prayers and your compassionate acts are like a memorial offering to God. Send messengers to Joppa at once and summon a certain Simon, the one known as Peter. He is a guest of Simon the Tanner, whose house is near the seacoast. When the angel who was speaking to him had gone, Cornelius summoned two of his household servants, along with a pious soldier from his personal staff. He explained everything to them, then sent them to Joppa. At noon on the following day, as their journey brought them close to the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted to eat. While others were preparing the meal, he had a visionary experience. He saw heaven open, opened up and something like a large linen sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. Inside the sheet were all kinds of four-legged animals, reptiles, and wild birds. A voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter exclaimed, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke a second time. Never consider unclean what God has made pure. This happened three times. Then the object was suddenly pulled back into heaven. Peter was bewildered about the meaning of the vision. Just then, the messengers sent by Cornelius discovered the whereabouts of Simon's house and arrived at the gate. Calling out, they inquired whether the Simon known as Peter was a guest there. While Peter was brooding over the vision, the spirit interrupted him. Look, three people are looking for you. Go downstairs, Do, don't ask questions. Just go with them because I have sent them. So Peter went downstairs and told them, I'm the one you are looking for, why have you come? They replied, we have come on behalf of Cornelius, a centurion and righteous man, a God worshiper who is well respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel directed him to summon you to his house and to hear what you have to say. Peter invited them into his house as his guests. The next day, he got up and went with them together with some of the believers of Joppa. Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever, worship him, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. They heard them speaking in other languages and praising God. Peter asked, these people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. 
Surely no one can stop them from being baptized with water, can they? He directed that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited Peter to stay for several days. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us. That we might be part of something much bigger than any one of us for the sake of your love and for the sake of this world that you love. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our passage for today is about awakening, and it's about hunger, and it's about a love that can wait no longer. Cornelius, I imagine this Italian man, Cornelius. Um, <laughs> Cornelius is a man of war, a centurion, which is to say a commander of 100 soldiers. And in this, he's not only employed by the Roman state, but serves as a cog in its death-dealing empirical machinery. He benefits tremendously from his positionality and has what so many in this world aspire to have, wealth, power, leadership, an obedient household. Can I get an amen? Uh, and yet, Cornelius is hungry. A man who in many ways has the world at his fingertips hungers for a God that is just out of reach. And so he prays. About a day's journey away, another hungry man is praying. As Peter ascends to a rooftop, perhaps to set his gaze over a world that Jesus somehow managed to love, he prays. First, maybe for the things he always prays for, courage to be the rock of the church as Jesus had anointed him, and wisdom to know how to do it right. But then something strange happens. A sheet comes down like an original game of parachute, but instead of colors, Trapped inside are creatures, fearsome and exotic creatures that might be fascinating to watch, uh, but terrifying when you're realizing that you're stuck in a sheet underneath um, with them, um, and especially repulsive in light of God's command. Kill and eat. It is an insulting proposition. Absolutely not, Peter proclaims, which even for someone like Peter is a pretty bold response when you're talking to God. But, it, that, that, but that it came from God is the only reason why Peter hasn't spat on the ground and just walked away. Kill and eat. And even as it violates these purity laws for eating, God is really not talking about consumption. God is talking about communion and community. And so firmly, gently, 
unrelentingly, God responds. Do not tell me what is unclean. I'm the one who made the rules in the first place. We're told that this proposition is raised three times before God probably shut down the conversation. The author doesn't describe it exactly, but I'm pretty sure God's final reply went something like this. I said what I said, okay? <laughs> Poor Peter, he doesn't even get a nap in before, uh, before the new regulations are put into effect. The bell rings, and in short order, he has three decidedly uncircumcised people standing before him. And you know, Peter's like, come on, God, can we not just take a beat here? But God is out of beats. God has no more beats to give, and love will not wait one more beat. This might be news to Peter, but God has been moving toward this moment for a very, very long time. You see, since Abraham begat Isaac, begat Jacob, begat Judah, since Salmon married Rahab, who begat Boaz, who married Ruth, who begat Obed, who begat Jesse, who begat David... Since David begat Solomon and Jeconiah begat Salatiel. Since Matan begat Jacob and Jacob begat a fellow named Joseph who hitched his star to a gal named Mary who begat a child named Jesus. God has been waiting a very long time. And God cannot wait any longer. Not even one beat. Because God is hungry. Why is God hungry? Because what God did through that long, narrow strip of scrappy, beloved people called forth from an old man who dared to say yes was a prototype. A prototype for something much bigger, more expansive than anyone had ever known. You see, when Jesus came through and people came alive to themselves, to God's love, to the powerful, powerful possibilities embedded in ancient promises, when death cracked open and life broke free, imaginations erupted. Cracks in generational foundations showed themselves and people grew afraid, so afraid that homegrown terrorists like a man named Saul began to plant seeds of righteous bloodshed and purification of the people through communal murder. God is seeing God's very own people implode. And so there is no more time for beats. The world that Jesus set in motion can wait no more. And so in short order, God takes care of that Saul character in chapter 9 just before this one, striking him blind and setting him on a path to death and rebirth as a man named Paul. The most immediate danger has been abated. But there is another one not far behind. It's a slow cooking kind of danger that works like Texas barbecue, smoked and dripping at a steady heat all the live long day. It's the kind of danger that looks like a stranger opening the car door to offer you a lollipop or a ride home or some other very kind and neighborly thing that is designed for an easy in but no way out. The danger of a faith calcified and features rendered as for, futures rendered as foregone conclusions that uses tradition to preclude innovation and doesn't think twice about sacrificing its young in service to the status quo. It's a pious danger that can point to adherence to the rules and uncritical cycles of inheritance and advancement in the name of legacy and identity. To set, to set, set to the universal hymn sung by institutions world over. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, we've always done it. Peter, a man whose loyalties run so deep and so fierce, you're just thankful that Don Vito Corleone didn't get his hands on him first. Peter has sobered up since his days of reckless discipleship and has recommitted himself to the cause. He wears the mantle that Jesus set on his shoulders with a determination that might perhaps only be matched by the likes of Shikari Richardson. I'm not back, I'm better. 
but is he? We've been in the series about what it means to pursue a transforming faith, which is another way of saying a faith that transforms. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jay talked about cleaning up the practices that, and rules and guidelines that serve as a scaffolding for our faith. Last week, uh, the Reverend Paula Stone Williams reflected on growing up. And today, we're talking about waking up, or as Erica Badu put it, getting woke. Is it wrong to change your mind? Is it weak, unreliable, or worse yet, a sign of spiritual corruption? Jesus was already suspect to most religious leadership of the day because his teachings were so threatening. But even he, for the most part, kept it in the family. What God is asking Peter to do is much more alarming and threatening than that. No. Peter would not just be selling himself out. He'd be selling out his people. He would be voiding out the means of a whole legacy that fueled survival and selfhood, of solidarity, sacrifice, and self-worth. He would be cheapening his whole ancestry. If he opens the store, he will cross into a land for which there is no way back. What does it look like to not just grow up in your faith, to find solid ground and identity, to cherish the stories of your people and your elders and the faith whose own faith helped you to get through to today? In the face of this, what does it look like to not only grow up in them, but then wake up from them. Who are you? Who are you to challenge long-held beliefs of those who made it through much worse than you? Who do you think you are? To disregard the teachings of your elders and ancestors of the faith like it doesn't count for something. It's a heavy prospect. And yet, this is the risk and cost of waking up. A couple of weeks ago, I spent time with a retired Lutheran pastor who shared with me two stories about chickens. And the first one, I'm sure I'll tell another time, but the second one is the one I'm going to share with you today. There was a seminary pastor that he had while he was studying at Luther Seminary. And as a young man, this professor had moved to the mountains uh, of northern India to work as a missionary. Now, this is probably, geez, so this is a retired pastor who was his semin seminary pastor, right? So this is probably like the 30s, maybe. Um, and uh, so he moved to the mountains of India to work as a missionary, and, um, and the professor had grown up on a farm in Wisconsin. Um, and so kind of as a way to, like, you know, find something that he felt he, maybe he was competent at or familiar with, um, he planted a little vegetable garden and got a couple of chickens um, to take care of. And after a while, those chickens laid eggs, and they hatched in, and grew into more chickens. And as he fed the chickens, they grew and grew, and after a while, he had too many chickens. Right? So he decided to give them away to his neighbors in the village. He walked through the village, you know, giving away chickens um, to folks. And they were like, oh, this nice American giving us chickens. Now, a few days later, some of the um, elders of the local church um, came and knocked on his door, and he opened it, and, and they told him, do not give chickens away to non-believers. So after he left, he was at odds within himself, right? He had grown up in a culture that taught him to respect his elders and to obey them. Um, he certainly wanted to be culturally sensitive and not do anything that would harm the relationship that he had with his elders or maybe even uh, other Christians in the area. But the instructions just didn't sit well with him. He felt like God would want him to share those chickens. 
especially with whoever could use them, right? He didn't need all those chickens. Anyway, he enjoyed sharing what he had with his neighbors. That also was part of his culture growing up. You, you know, you share things with your neighbors. And so he really wrestled with this. Now, a few months later, he had even more chicks that grew into chickens, far more than he knew what to do with. And he decided to go out and give away the chickens again. After he returned home, he was nervous, right? He knew he would blatantly uh, disobeyed. And so, you know, he, he worried. Had he damaged his relationship with the local church? Would the elders punish him in some way? Well, later, sure enough, they came to his door and knocked. He took a deep breath, opened it, and they said to him this, we want to know about a God who will give chickens to anyone. When Peter opens the door, he has a choice. He can say, uh, thanks, we're not interested in upgrading our subscription right now. Uh, or he can do what the Holy Spirit isn't whispering about, but in fact is shouting very loudly in his ear and kicking him in the back to do, which is this, go with them. And if you read through this, chapter 9 and 10, you see that God is moving quickly and simultaneously on multiple fronts, right? You've got Paul, Saul on the road. You've got Cornelius praying and, sh and showing up and the, the uh, messenger's coming and Peter's on the roof. And all of this is happening within just like a week, you know? And so as, a th as uh, the theologian Willie Jennings put it, um, he, he said, this is aggressive community organizing by a God whose hands are very heavy in this business. Even so, I think it's worth noting that for as much as God is trying to orchestrate and move furniture and get things, you know, knock down walls, God still lets them choose. There is a door that stands, and there are people who decide to come up and knock on it, and there's someone on the other side of that door deciding whether or not to open it. Peter has to make a decision, and he has to make it now. And he knows deeply within that if he opens that door, it will never be able to close again. How do you change a world? Maybe you need to turn it upside down so that you can turn it properly right side up. The world is turning, 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 and Peter decides to turn with it. To step into a strange new world, as another theologian, Karl Barth, put it. Peter and his crew arrive at the home of Cornelius, and after an awkward scene where Cornelius bows down to Peter, who is clearly unnerved by this, like, I'm, I'm not God, like, you know, this is weird. Um, Peter tries to help them appreciate, though, what it costs for him to be there. He says, you all realize that it's forbidden for me to be here, that the very fact that I have stepped into your household has broken all kinds of rules. I am violating significant boundaries just by standing in this room. They don't totally understand, but Peter plows ahead because it's not about him, really, at the end of this, right? It's about this new thing that God wants to do. And so he says, I'm not here because of your invitation, because if you invited me, I'd say no. I'm here because God's command. God has told me I need to do this. So then Cornelius shares about his story, and Peter is, is, is trying to find his words, right? He, this is the first time he's even talking about some, this strange thing that has happened with the sheep and the, sheep and the animals. And in the finding and the sharing and the, in the real-time learning, 
There is a whole household waiting to hear what God has promised. So Peter shares this story about his beloved teacher and friend. And as he does this, something fearsome blooms in the room. It's something like anticipation and hope and things turned upside down, but also right side up. And as the Holy Spirit fills their hearts, she unbinds their tongues. And perhaps, perhaps for the first time in any real way, the members of Cornelius's household could speak with their truest tongues, slaves from who knows where throughout the empire, not speaking Roman, Greek, Greek. Not speaking Greek, right? But the language of Ethiopia, the language of Asia Minor, speaking with their whole selves, showing up, slave and free, male and female, Greek and Italian and Roman. They were all freed from the bounds of empire, freed for the love of God. It can be terrifying to wake up. And this kind of terror is a two-sided coin. On one side is the courage required to act on the awakening, but on the other, oh, on the other is the exhilaration of seeing what happens when we let God loose in our lives, messing up all of our best laid plans in all the best ways that we could have hoped, turning our worlds upside down so that it can be set right. Getting woke is painful, and staying woke is hard. But the greatest tragedy, the greatest tragedy would be to choose to go back to sleep. Friends, God is calling you to an awakening of some kind. The Spirit is urging you toward enacting, and Jesus is inviting you to carry forward the new legacy made possible by Peter's faithfulness. Maybe today you are standing at a door on which you know God is knocking. You know it. You can hear it. You can feel the Holy Spirit <laughs> kicking you in the back. Will you turn the knob? Will you turn it? Will you let yourself be turned? Open the door and see what happens. Open the door and allow yourself to step into a new way of being with God, with others, with yourself. Realizing the effect of his message, Peter steps back in amazement because it's like Pentecost 2.0. These people have already received the Holy Spirit, just as we have, he exclaims. And so surely no one can stop them from being baptized with water, can they? Who am I to stand in the way of that? Cornelius' household becomes the first Gentile household to be baptized. And just like that, everyone gets a chicken. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your generous, abundant, impossible love. We thank you that you awaken us even when we keep our eyes closed and pull the covers over our head that you turn that sheet into a revelation so that we can be part of your revolution. And so whatever it is that you are inviting us to do, to face, to have the courage to step into, to open the door, 
we ask that you would help us to step into it, to do the hard work, to see the terror, but move toward it instead of away, trusting and knowing that your love is in fact terrifying, that it's fearsome, and that it is powerfully transformative. Help us to give ourselves over to the work of your spirit so that we can be part of your revolution. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.